Suddenly you're talking about children losing parents, your grandfather, my grandfather, losing the opportunity to be raised up by your birth family. And this was a consequence, right, for thousands of children. It's hard to conceptualize the magnitude of loss inflicted by the Spanish flu. 675,000 deaths in the United States alone. It's just as hard to try to understand the impact of the disease on a given family or community. What were ordinary Americans experiencing during the bleakest days of the pandemic? How did their experiences vary based on age, race, class, and region? And in what ways were people's lives altered by the virus? I'm Margot Gray. On this episode of Lost Prologue, we'll explore the traumatic impact of the pandemic across the American landscape. Chapter 2. Who Lives, Who Dies? I spoke to Dr. Nancy Bristow, History Department Chair at the University of Puget Sound and author of American Pandemic, The Lost Worlds of the 1918 Influenza Pandemic. Her grandfather, John Bristow, was around 15 years old and living in Pittsburgh when he lost both his mother and father to the Spanish flu. My grandfather's parents were working class people in Pittsburgh. And so trying to figure out what his experience would have been like and his parents' experience would have been like was what I was trying to recreate. I traveled to archives all over the country actually to do my work. It was a, a true needle in a haystack kind of pursuit. As Dr. Bristow uncovered the stories of Americans from all walks of life, it became apparent that the ravages of disease did not fall equitably across society. In 1918, a host of factors determined who fell severely ill, who received adequate care, who lived, and who died. One such factor was age. Influenza is traditionally associated with a U-shaped mortality curve, since the peaks in mortality occur among infants and the elderly, both of whom are immunocompromised populations. But in 1918, the curve was W-shaped, reflecting a peak in mortality among people 20 to 40 years old, young adults who, by all accounts, should have survived the flu. For those aged 15 to 34, influenza and pneumonia death rates were more than 20 times higher in 1918 than in previous years, causing life expectancy in the United States to drop by more than 10 years. Scientists and virologists have proposed various hypotheses to explain the unusual death rate. One theory suggests that the robust immune response in young adults, while normally advantageous, led to severe inflammatory responses in the lungs and turned out to be harmful. Another theory posits that older people, those 65 and older, 
may have been spared partially due to exposure to previous viruses, giving them greater immunity to the 1918 viral strain. Whatever the explanation, the atypical death rate had cruel consequences. Many were left widowed, and many, like John Bristow, were left orphaned. By November 1918, a staggering 31,000 children in New York City had lost one or both parents. It also means that those adults in the room, whether that's the classroom or the business or the city council, you can go all across all the different avenues of our lives, the different sort of places where we enact what it means to be a society and a culture, and the leaders were being struck down around us. So the kind of chaos that that implied was both personal with people losing parents or wives or husbands or aunts or cousins or sisters, but also it was this public catastrophe, this public chaos as important people in in local communities were being lost to this illness. In addition to age, we know that social factors like socioeconomic status shaped a person's experience with the virus. Interestingly, early reports characterized Spanish flu as an egalitarian disease, since it infected both rich and poor and sickened world leaders, including President Wilson. But the qualitative data make clear that if the virus were egalitarian, society certainly was not. While the rich could afford the services of local nurses and doctors, the poor relied on aid from local governments and charitable organizations, and often could not access any type of medical care. So access to health care could also just mean something as simple as being able to weather the pandemic uh, in a safe clean, sanitary environment with someone who could actually take care of you, who wasn't either needing to go to work, looking after other people, or themselves ill. For poorer people living, say, in a tenement, uh, they might have eight people living in, in one room. They might have eight people sleeping in one bed. So even if they could get some access to healthcare, which was much less likely than it was for a person of means, even so, the opportunity to take care of one another or to do any kind of social distancing, which they did understand, at least to some extent, was made impossible. Mary Westfall, a visiting nurse in Chicago who is treating impoverished patients, wrote in November of 1918. Because of bad housing conditions and overcrowding, we were very hard hit on the west side of Chicago and are still getting calls where entire families are ill. Dirty streets, dirty alleys, and just as dirty houses and lack of proper sleeping quarters have made our work more than unusually difficult. For Black Americans, the combination of poverty and racial prejudice often rendered healthcare inaccessible. In 1918, legalized segregation barred Black patients and Black medical professionals from accessing most hospitals and healthcare facilities. And on the whole, 
white nurses and physicians refused to treat black victims. Bessie B. Haas, an African-American nurse working outside Talladega, Alabama, wrote, In the backwoods, a colored family of 10 were in bed and dying for the want of attention. No one would come near. I was asked by the health officer if I would go. I was glad of the opportunity. As I entered the little country cabin, I found the mother dead in bed. Three children buried the week before, the father and remainder of the family running a temperature of 102 to 104. Unfortunately, the lack of accurate record-keeping makes it difficult to compare morbidity and mortality rates across communities of color and the white community. Some observational accounts from 1918 actually report a lower incidence of influenza in the Black community. One scholar, Vanessa Northington Gamble, has hypothesized that segregation may have functioned as a type of quarantine. Other scholars have cast doubt on the numbers, warning that Black fatalities were likely underreported and disregarded. The facts remain murky. I think it's very difficult to know exactly what to make of that data, and so I would handle it very, very carefully and not assume that that tells us anything about the quality of health care or the level of good health in the Black community at that time. We know historically that, in fact, Health conditions were much poorer in the Black community at that historical moment. In 1915, there's a 16-year difference in life expectancy between white Americans and Black Americans. What we do know with certainty, however, is that racism and discrimination left Black communities to fend for themselves. So when emergency hospitals were established in Richmond, they were available, but Black people had to go to the basement to be treated. In Philadelphia, they opened emergency hospitals, but none of them opened by the white community actually admitted black citizens. It was up to the black community to establish additional sites for the black community when the two black hospitals were filled to overflowing. And as you know, the story of Philadelphia, that happened quickly. At Frederick Douglass Memorial Hospital, one of Philadelphia's two black hospitals, Influenza victims quickly filled the 75 beds. The city's Board of Health refused to provide financial support, and the hospital's medical director scrambled to establish an emergency clinic at a black parochial school a couple blocks away. So the problems of discrimination weren't only a Southern problem. This was a nationwide problem. So we can't say definitively that there was this death rate versus that death rate. But what we can say is that the suffering that people did was made worse by social discrimination, by pre-existing health problems, by issues of poverty, by the inadequate access to the most basic resources, whether that's enough coal to stay warm or healthy water or access to reasonable food. All of those things were much harder on people of color and as well as poorer people, just as we're seeing in 2020. So it's really, it's horrific for me to see it repeated so exactly 102 years later. Across the United States, indigenous groups suffered horribly as well. Government reports suggest that Native Americans died at a rate three to four times higher than the rest of the U.S. population. 
When I spoke to Dr. Michaela Adams, Associate Professor of History at the University of Mississippi, she explained that Native communities faced multiple risk factors, including poverty, malnutrition, and chronic disease. By the time influenza hit in 1918, infectious diseases like tuberculosis and trachoma were already epidemic on many reservations. Worse still, access to outside care was limited, and the Indian Health Service was greatly underfunded. Mortality rates varied by tribe, and some reservations faced particularly heavy losses. The Navajo Nation in the Southwest suffered a mortality rate of around 10% compared to the global mortality rate of 2.5 to 5%. In the Alaskan Territory, a similar combination of isolation, living conditions, and cultural beliefs resulted in the death of approximately 5,000 Aboriginal inhabitants, compared to 500 white residents. In Brevig Mission, Alaska, the flu nearly erased the entire community of Inuit natives, who likely had never before been exposed to influenza. In the span of five days, the pandemic killed 72 of the village's 80 adult inhabitants. Spanish flu reached every level of society, spanning geography, class, and race. But the ultimate impact would be felt most harshly in the most vulnerable and marginalized communities which faced a shortage of medical care and social services. Tragically, when I talk with people about the similarities to the pandemics, I immediately go to this resonance, which is that I see very little difference. Those who are in marginalized communities in 1918 and 2020 are in both cases suffering desperately. So again, in 2020, we're seeing essentially the same thing play out, which is shocking in a nation with such modern healthcare, one of the richest nations in the world, that we could be experiencing a pandemic and allowing the same kind of inequities based in class and in race and in ethnicity, in citizenship status to play out is really quite shocking to me. Perhaps this time around, our narrative and collective memory of the pandemic will acknowledge the ways that Americans were differentially and inequitably impacted by the virus. The ways that suffering was deepened by poverty, racial inequality, and marginalization. Of course, the story is yet to be written. Mm -hmm.